Hello, I'm Julie Swenson, Managing Director of Forward Theatre Company in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm Mike Fisher, Milwaukee-based theatre writer and dramaturg. I'm Jen Uphoff-Gray, Founder and Artistic Director of Forward Theatre Company. And this is Theatre Forward, a twice-monthly conversation about theatre from a local, regional, and national perspective. From Madison to Manhattan, we're excited to share insight into our own company while exploring issues surrounding theatre in the Midwest and around the country. Welcome to episode 14 of Theatre Forward. Hello. So this week's conversation is about ticket pricing and how it impacts us both as audience members and as theatre producers. And so it seemed obvious to us that our Theatre Forward producer, Scott Hayden, whose day job is as director of marketing at Forward, should really be on mic for this conversation. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Good <laughs> yes. to be here. <laughs> Welcome, Scott. So, you know, Mike, I know that you this summer had a trip to New York City. I have a trip uh, coming up at the end of the summer to New York City. So we have both recently spent a lot of money on theater tickets, and that kind of prompted this conversation. It's um, it's ridiculous, and I know that's uh, that's that's something lots of people are saying, but it's really true. And it's not, uh, you know, it's not just us pining for the good old days. I mean, when you look at the actual numbers, you know, the average cost of a Broadway ticket in the early '80s was twenty five dollars. According to inflation, that should be at about sixty dollars now. Yeah. And Jen, as you know from the sticker shock you're dealing with, we're paying way more. Uh, than fifty or sixty dollars for, yeah. for Broadway and that's, tickets, and that's not even looking at scalpers or resale sites or anything like that, where obviously things can go completely crazy. But just like list price, um, you know, a Broadway musical, we're talking, you know, several hundred dollars to be in the orchestra or the front of the mezzanine, which that's that's a lot for two to three hours of entertainment, mm -hmm. no matter how brilliant it is, you know, and. Folks like us, we're in a position where, you know, we can make a choice to allocate some of our, our resources to that, but that that is certainly very limiting for the vast majority of the populace. Well, yeah, and it's not, and again, I, mean, I, I cited the stat just now about inflation, but even in the most recent year, I mean, attendance is doing really well on, on Broadway. There's been a lot of talk about that. Um, but even in the most recent completed year for which there are statistics, the 2017-18 season, you know, average attendance went up under 2% average ticket price went up over 15%. I mean, that's just not right. And it's hard for me not to start using words like gouge um, in that context. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, it's tough, too, because I also understand, I, you know, I've worked on, on Broadway. Now, this is back mostly in the 90s and early 2000s when things were at least a little cheaper relatively than they are now. But I recognize, too, that the costs of production have gone up greater than the cost of, you know, the rate of inflation. It is incredibly expensive. It is incredibly risky. Most theater producers lose their shirts. You know, you, you, then you get lucky and you have a Hamilton and then you can retire forever. But most of the people who invest money in theater who produce theater, that that's not the case. And so. I get that. I, I get that we have to think about demand as well. If someone is willing to pay that amount of money, then is it really right to say to those producers, you can't make that money that people are willing to hand to you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yes. And I would add, and this is, I, I don't want to veer this off, but also to this paying lip service to, we want a diverse group, you know, diverse audience. And I'm saying that's not just race. That's also age, economics, economics. You're not, you, how can you possibly get that? Um, with these prices. Now, certainly there are ways to get in uh, on Broadway and other places a little bit uh, cheaper that uh, we can talk about, too. Yeah, I was certainly very interested to be watching. You know, this is now going back four years uh, to when Hamilton was first opening on Broadway. But 
you know, looking at these producers um, and because Lin-Manuel Miranda was so vocal and present on Twitter and and really kind of letting his followers into some of the conversations and decision making um, that they were having, getting ready for that Broadway production and, and knowing that the demand was unlike anything that had been seen before and that they could pretty much charge whatever they wanted for those seats. And so then for those producers having that conversation, OK, but then we're also going to offer X number of ten dollar tickets, which is mm-hmm ridiculously cheap um and sort of feeling like okay great we're letting the people who've got five hundred dollars to spend on a ticket subsidize the people for whom we can essentially give them away um and so there is a lot of that that you see as well but none of it gets around that sticker shock you know it really but there are companies doing uh decent jobs yeah well, and especially the minute, you know, I think it was interesting to sort of start this conversation looking at, you know, big Broadway musicals. Right. And that can be applicable to conversations about big touring Broadway musicals as well. But as soon as you step away from Broadway, that, you know, very small geographic, you know, s- series of blocks in central Manhattan, mm-hmm. then we start to see a, a huge range of ticket pricing, ticket strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it'd be fun to talk about some of those. Right. I think even even on Broadway, I mean, and I do want to talk about off Broadway and other options, because I do think that sometimes we we forget how many options there are for relatively cheap tickets. Um, But even for something like Broadway, you have something like the Theater Development Fund. Alas, Mm -hmm. I'm not eligible for that. But I mean, if you're if you're a senior over 62 or if you're a student or a vet uh, or a union member or an artist um, and you can produce credentials for that, then for some ridiculously low amount, I think it's forty dollars a year. You can, you know, get tickets to almost anything on Broadway at up to 70 percent off. Um, You know, there's obviously the TKTS, you know, uh, there, there are other things out there and there are options available. It's just not, um, it, it's not as, it's not what it should be. And for those of us in the middle between being students and being seniors, it's a little harder to find options well, like that. And, and those options, you know, I, I, I lived in New York for a dozen years and those options are, they are really great for people who are living there because if you right. don't have a very narrow window of time that you're in New York to see something, then you can really take advantage. There's, there's, as you say, there are so many ways that you can get more affordably priced Broadway tickets. But, you know, now that I'm here and, and, and my friends here, basically, if you're, if you don't live in New York and you're coming to New York for a brief visit and you want to see some Broadway shows, it starts to feel, you know, a lot riskier. Like, do I not care what I'm going to see? So I'll just go to the TKTS booth or today ticks online and I'll sort of get what's available or I'm only going to be there for four days. This is the show I need to see. So I need to pay the price to guarantee spend your vacation time and in the line of TKTS. That sounds horrible. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that kind of takes me, you know, to, um, you know, there's several examples of companies around the country that are trying creative things in the area of ticket pricing, um, thinking about that brief stint of being in New York and, and making sure you lock in the ticket for the thing you want to see. That makes me think of um, the radical hospitality program at Mixed Blood in the Twin Cities. Um, they've been doing this for, for many years and their tickets are free um, until the house is full, day of performance. But if you want to purchase a ticket in advance and guarantee that you can see it, um, there's a set price. I think it's currently thirty five dollars, which is still very, you know, modest relative um, cost. But um, 
that's a really interesting strategy. We've seen some other companies, you know, trying to mm-hmm. adapt that for their for their own needs. Um, you know, one, one of the ones I'm a big, big fan of is Signature Theater in New York, um, which is uh, has been staging Octet, Dave Molloy's Octet, which I've raved about before um, on, on this podcast. And they and they 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 took this idea from the National Theater in, in London with a similar initiative there. But since 2005, um, they have been guaranteeing subsidized tickets for every show, no requirements in terms of age. Uh, student status, veteran status, whatever, anybody can go to one of the initial run uh, uh, shows of, of any one of their productions uh, and get what is now $35. It started at $15 in, in 2005. So they just sold their millionth subsidized ticket in that interval um, sometime uh, this spring. And it's funded, you know, of, of course they get grants and I'm, it's New York. I'm sure they have opportunities for bigger grants than we do, but it's also funded by donors, um, you know, who are, are doing it, you know, 50, 75, a hundred dollar, uh, dollops that, uh, money is dedicated and set aside by this theater, which also does really, really great work promoting, uh, you know, our top rate artists right now. I mean, their season next year is Anna DeVere Smith and Dominique Morisot and a legacy play by Horton Foote. I mean, you know, you kind of can't go wrong um, with work of people of that quality. That makes me think there's um, uh, they were doing an experiment at Intamin Theater in Seattle uh, this past spring where they decided to make one of their productions totally free to attend. Um, you know, they I was reading an article about it. They, you know, had to ask their donors to support, you know, about $66,000 in additional costs beyond what they normally would have needed um, to cover that. But um, they had a consulting marketing director who was helping them put this project together. And, um, and he said, now we can invite people who come to see the show for free to support the work. They can say, this had value to me and I have $10 to throw in. Or this had value to me and I have $50,000 to throw in. And that is certainly, you know, a, a, a model. We, we've seen a lot of other companies that don't do this for an entire run, but they'll have a pay what you can night. Sure. You know, and most most theaters in Milwaukee have pay what you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So here's a performance. You're not guaranteed a seat to it, but right, you show up and you put in what you can. And that can be a dollar and it can be $50, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. and uh, you, you literally pay what you can. Right. How many dollars you, you put in can vary too, you know, based on, you know, dynamic pricing models, which um, have become so popular in, in the last few years. Um, and I'm sure we all got opinions on, on that. One of the ones I really like is the way they do it at Writers Theater, um, for whom one of the chief marketing gurus is somebody that was at Signature before she, she went to Writers. Uh, and they start every ticket at $35. They make very clear, we're going to go up. If this is a show that does well, and writer shows generally do, um, you know, the stratosphere could be the limit. But they're making clear to everybody that you can get in at the bottom at $35. There's still also offers for students and vets and things like that. So you can see, for example, David Cromer's Next to Normal, which is better than anything I saw in New York this year, um, for $35, uh, which is pretty pretty great. Of course, dynamic pricing doesn't always work um, in, in a way that's so pro-consumer. We here at Forward have for many years resisted the urge to dynamically price our tickets. And for those who have maybe been listening to this from the start, you might know that we are a resident company in a large performing arts complex. But for those who are just now listening, um, we don't have our own box office. We rely on this large 
Performing Arts Center to handle all of our ticket sales. So in many ways, you know, they've encouraged us because I think they have experienced success with this. They've encouraged us to experiment with it as well. Um, but as a consumer, if I was just outside of forward theater entirely, I hate dynamic pricing. I know that we've been conditioned to be used to it uh, from a travel Airlines, perspective. Airlines, hotels. Rental cars, travel. The right. longer you wait, the more expensive it gets. But it feels a little bit like a betrayal when a theater company or if a movie theater were to do something like that. I would really be dissatisfied with this, with the experience. And it's something I'm proud that we haven't done it. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe Jen, you want to explain why maybe it's, I mean, I think for me, it's a loyalty to our customers, mm -hmm. but I think, I think maybe there's even more, more to it than that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm with you, Scott. I just, it's just something I don't like as a consumer. And so um, I see that there are potential financial benefits. Obviously, if a show is a big success, dynamic pricing allows you to capitalize on that demand and make a little more money. And that is good for nonprofits. And, and I would add, too, that so many people, ticket buyers are buying their tickets later and later and later and later. You know, it used yeah. to be weeks. You would know where your single right. tickets so are. Dynamic. And, and that kind of encourages people to think ahead and yes. plan Plan your weekend earlier than uh, usual. Yes. And, I, and I like that. Yeah, but. I, get, I, I get that. I do get that. And I also know that dynamic pricing is, um, you know, maybe an easier way, you know, if a show isn't selling well, a way to help move those tickets without being quite so blatant with a, you know, fire sale on, on your mm -hmm. on your ticket. So so I get that as a producer, but as a consumer, I don't want to I don't like playing a game about making a decision of when do I buy my ticket right. and you know, how long do I wait? And is it going to cost me more? It's like, it's, it's painful enough when I'm trying to buy a plane ticket and I'm like, if I buy it on Tuesday, can I maybe get a better <laughs> seat? But then maybe the, the, the flights that don't have big layovers are gone. I just, I want people to find it easy and stress free and complication free as much as possible to buy tickets to come see the theater. And adding the dynamic pricing means that you're having to strategize about whether or not to buy that ticket now or later. It, yeah, your, your point on the flip side that it would be great to incentivize earlier decision-making that would help reduce a lot of our sleepless nights sometimes um, when people are waiting later and later. But, you know, we, our healthy subscriber base helps us, um, you know, alleviate some of that stress. And maybe the subscription pricing models is something worth talking about. I, I would just, one more thing too, I think that, it, once you do that dynamic pricing, that's what it has to be because you have to you have to train your audience to know that so yeah. that they're they're not coming in saying I'm expecting this ticket to cost me forty nine and now it's at sixty. Mm -hmm. um, that feels like you're punishing them unless there's some really great marketing to make sure that they know what the situation is. And you've that becomes be, difficult. You've got to be really clear from the start. Very we do clear. this. We always do this. You right. know that's what you're going to get from us. And then it's cool. But if you surprise your patrons with it on a rate on an occasional basis, then I think you damage that relationship. I do too. Yeah. And maybe long term, Jen, to your point, it will mean that there is a rebirth of what's been a, a decline for theater companies for a while now, which is some version of a subscription based um, model. I mean, again, to plug another Chicago company, I absolutely adore. It's the smallest or one of the smallest equity theaters in Chicago is Steep Theater, uh, north of downtown. Uh, you can get a flex pass to, you know, four tickets to, you know, their four show season, reserve seats, because some of theirs are general admission for $90, um, which is basically a free show 
um, which means you're already dealing with fairly low uh, ticket prices. And that's the kind of thing that would be attractive to a lot of people. And then they also have different models based on whether you get a general admission ticket or a guaranteed reserve seat picked by the director, according to the website, um, <laughs> that you can pay a little bit more for and which helps subsidize some of their educational programs. So that's a modest season subscription to an excellent theater, um, which is only a stone's throw away for a lot of our listeners. I used to love when I was, um, you know, a young director in my early years in New York. So this would be in the mid 90s. The only theater company I subscribed to was Lincoln Center. And it was fantastic because I paid, a, I think it was $30 a year to be a subscriber. And what that meant was that there was, I don't know, a two day period where subscribers could then purchase tickets to any of their shows before they went on sale to the general public. And I want to say it was $25 or $30 to then buy a ticket for a show. So if I bought tickets for one show, I had my $30 buy in and then I had my additional, let's say, $30. And that would be 60, which for that time period was about right for, a you know, off-Broadway nonprofit theater of the caliber of Lincoln Center. But then if I bought another show, it was a little, you know, a little so it was cheaper. Kind a little cheaper. Yeah. it was kind of a membership. It was like a membership, but it got you access and they, and then the subscribers got there to buy their tickets before they went on sale to the general mm -hmm. public. And it was incredibly affordable. And I, you know, I saw Audra McDonald in Carousel. I saw Cherry Jones, you know, it, I, I, just, I saw so many. Mike is turning green with envy. <laughs> I saw so, so many gorgeous, brilliant productions in this tiny theater. And that was a, for a student, you know, wasn't officially student. I was just post student years, but it was incredibly affordable model even for me. Do you think that a model like that could work for a company the size of Forward Theater, or does it need to be with a theater that's offering multiple things throughout the course of an entire season and you can really take advantage of the price? Um, I, I think it would be tough for a company as relatively small as ours because we have four shows a year and only three weeks of performances. Um, and so, you know, we're in this unique, wonderful situation where we have a huge portion of our audience taken up with regular subscribers who have their, you know, second Thursday night subscription. Um, I, I think it would be hard with only four things a year, but I think there could be models. And we've talked about maybe trying to come up with a, uh, you know, some sort of pass for younger audiences um, that could could choose. But I, um, you know, what all of it kind of comes back to for me is personally, I don't think theater tickets should be free. I think they should be affordable and accessible. And that means having a wide variety of ways that people can choose to come to your shows. But just sort of philosophically, it bothers me when they're absolutely free because I think that our work has economic value as well as intrinsic, emotional, cultural value. And um, there's a big difference between giving someone a comp and and charging them $5. Yep. Say we're charging them $5. There is some, they are seeing a perceived value yeah. and are more likely, honestly, to show up. Yeah. And we've we, seen that when yeah. we've given, you know, a, a group, you know, 50 free tickets to come to this performance. Well, if it's free, you can stay home. If you really skin in the game of a couple of dollars makes a difference. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting psychological thing. Yeah. And it's, it's partly mm -hmm. about, you don't want those empty seats because it was a free ticket. So people don't feel like it has value and they don't show up and that just sucks for the people right. stage performing. But it also just gets back to the idea that artists, at least the ones who work for us, who work for professional companies, are professionals and they are doing a job. Mm -hmm. And 
when you make the tickets free, I do feel like it's implying that the job they're doing doesn't have value. Now, I'm not saying that you don't have special situations where you say, and this is being underwritten because it does have value, but we want to have this special thing that is free. You know, when our, um, our colleague company, Madison Opera, every summer does their free concert, free opera in the park, or when the chamber orchestra does the concerts on the square and these events are free, it's in addition to their work that you're also paying for. And you do get this sense of we're doing, this is a gift to the community, but our work has economic value. And I just, I feel like one of my biggest advocacy roles heading an organization, especially here in the state of Wisconsin is reminding everybody that artists and arts organizations have significant economic impact, that these are professionals who are contributing to our communities, to our culture and to our economy. And it is a, it is a, uphill battle to make that broadly understood. And I think when you give the work away for free, you're kind of undermining that argument. You know, in the context of the economy that we're in, and particularly in the context of this shamefully underfunded, publicly underfunded state, 48th (laughs) in the country in terms of per capita contributions to artists, which is just horrible. Uh, Governor Evers, if you're listening, this is ridiculous. (laughs) This is a a fight worth taking on. Um, But, but, you know, in, in the perfect world, we shouldn't have to be comparing ourselves in an economic model to things that are part of an economic um, capitalist system. I, I, I don't agree with that. I don't think that when people say, well, gosh, you know, the tickets to see Bette Midler in her final couple of weeks, you know, as Hello, Dolly in Hello, Dolly were fifteen hundred dollars. And the response from economists was, well, yeah, but the St. Regis Corner Suite might cost you more than that, too. And if it's not there, too bad, so sad. And that grates on me because it is equating what we do as artists with a sort of classical economic model. If we were funded by the government in the way that we should be, our work could have value um, while still being free or close to free. And I think the best example, and this is private funded, uh, Jen, to your point, is the the enormous prestige that accompanies the two Shakespeare in the Park productions in Central Park every year, which are free and go Joe Papp and Oscar Eustace, I love you. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Oh, for sure. Yes, and uh, you know, the the rate Raised as a socialist in Wisconsin, um, Jen Uphoff, little Jenny Uphoff, you know, says, yes, yes, go. But as, as you pointed out, that's not the, the world we're currently living in. And, and right now we're fighting for both government and corporate recognition of the economic value of our work. And so I, being in this current situation, I worry that free tickets undermine the larger argument that we're trying to make. As a as audience services director and sort of a box office um, manager for for Forward Theater, I I hesitate to give anything away for free, but I'm also not opposed to selling tickets at a dramatically reduced rate if that's to encourage younger audience members to attend. Um, but I also then hesitate to do like we talked about fire sales, mm-hmm. what that projects to a potential audience member about whether or not the show is worth seeing. You wade into some really kind of murky waters there, too. Yeah. Well, and to me, what the fire sales do is they encourage the exact kind of behavior, to your point, Julie, that we're trying to discourage, which is wait till the last minute. Right. And you might get a right, deal. Right. And then you'll get a two for one. No, Just no, hold no. on. No. Well, that, and that's <laughs> or, why I love the you know. subscriber model, because it says, look, if you're willing to commit to coming to see our season a year in advance, you're going to get 
discounted tickets. You're going to get great locations. You are part of the family. You're going to get all kinds of special bonus, you know, advantages. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's rewarding the exact kind of behavior that helps us sustain our organization. Right. Um, yeah. You know, speaking of something which is not, um, free, which, uh, uh, makes me a little bit crazy. Can our August marketing director address, if you know, Scott, the issue of online fees, um, which just, just absent. And it's not just me. I mean, you talk to people and it just sends them into orbit. Do you know why they are as exorbitant or what seem to be as exorbitant as they are? I can't speak to why say Ticketmaster charges what they do, but I do know from, um, previous experiences as box office manager. My early days, we incorporated online fees simply to pay for the software that would allow us to offer online ticket sales. It's not that long ago that online ticket sales were this kind of new experience right. for people. And so theaters were drastically, I mean, very quickly trying to catch up and offer that to their patrons. But to do so, it came at an extreme cost. And the few companies that offered that software because I think they knew that there was such a demand. They were charging these exorbitant rates to do it. So we would tack on a, a ticket fee essentially to help us pay to have that service exist. I think over time, because it has just become the norm, I do think those those fees, yes, they're probably still paying for that. But I think I think it's paying for more in, in terms of the average, you know, performing arts center. Um, so I don't know what, you know, some of those companies are spending that money on, but I do think we've all reached a point where those ticket fees have become a necessary part of our budget. Um, I can't say that for forward theater because we don't see those ticket fees. We don't, we don't receive those. Um, but I think other theater companies are probably relying on those. Well, and, and sort of to, to get to that as well, Mike, there is there's tremendous frustration. You know, we hear it from our single ticket buyers, our subscribers, you know, get to avoid those fees. But then when someone buys a single ticket um, for a forward show, as Scott pointed out earlier, they're not dealing with us directly. They're dealing with the the venue that is our home that runs all the box office um, software and, and personnel, et cetera. And we do hear from people who are really unhappy about it. It, but I also know from conversations with the folks at Overture Center for the Arts, where we where we reside, um, that there are a lot of really hard costs that are being covered and that if they weren't being charged in those fees, they would be having to charge us more and we would have to raise the ticket prices. And so one of the things we've really been advocating for is better storytelling and transparency about exactly what those fees are paying for. Because I think if when you logged on to OvertureCenter.com to buy a ticket for a forward show, and you buy your ticket and it gets in your cart and then it says, you know, and here's this X, you know, per ticket fee and there's this Y per order fee. And then there's a little thing that says, you know, explaining the fees. You can click on that and it says this fee pays for the box office staff that processes your order, prints it out, puts it in an envelope, puts a stamp on it. You know, this service pays for I mean, they use the Tessitura box office software, which, which is, is the Mercedes Benz. It is the Mercedes Benz. And we are so lucky that they have that package. We get a lot of functionality mm -hmm. out of it. But it's really expensive and you do have to pay for that. And the fact that people don't have to get in their car and drive downtown and park and pay for parking and walk into the box office to buy a ticket, there are costs affiliated, but communicate transparency. People wouldn't be mad if they understood what it was for. And then it would also become clearer when there are, you know, when there are organizations that 
we would use your word gouging, you know, or that are going, hey, we can, let's do it because we can, not because we need to, that would, I think, become more apparent and they might be shamed into reducing right. it. Or calling it something like a facility charge when you know the money isn't going to the facility. Right. That, you know, right. That, right. don't do that. Right. <laughs> you know, I think we're going to shortly be kind of winding up this conversation, but I do want to put in a plug for, for one program for free tickets that I'm very supportive of. Um, and that is because we all know uh, as working artists in the field, that it can be very hard to go and see theater when you're a theater artist mm-hmm. for financial reasons. Right. Uh, people don't get paid enough and therefore they don't have money for tickets. And um, uh, several years ago, um, the Dramatist Guild and I believe Samuel French uh, came together to address the fact that so many playwrights can't afford to see theater. And that's the best possible way to educate yourself and grow as a, as a playwright is to see other plays, not just read them on the page, but to see them on their feet and understand understand how they uh, play in front of an audience. And so they came up with this program called Playwrights Welcome, where um, authors who are members of the Dramatists Guild um, can uh, walk up to a participating theater. And if there is an available seat that night, you know, so it's based on availability. If the show sold out, the show sold out. But you can you can walk up and you can get a free ticket. So we've been members of that for several years. I just think it's a really cool program. And I would love to see every company in the country sign up for it. Because, again, you're not giving away a sold ticket. You're giving away an empty seat. And right. you're using it to support the next generation of playwrights that we all depend on to do our work. So plug for playwrights. Welcome. Here, Fantastic. Plug for playwrights. Plug for plays. Plug for Black Box Theater, which is a lot less expensive. So. <laughs> I love it. Well, this was a fun. I feel like we could go for another hour and a half. <laughs> Probably. Uh, maybe we'll part have a two. Part, part two exactly in a few months. But but for now, we will let you get on with the rest of your day. Um, this is it for this episode of Theater Forward, a conversation about theater in Wisconsin, the Midwest, and America. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jenna Poff Gray. I'm Julie Swenson. And I'm Mike Fisher. Our podcast is produced by the amazing Scott Hayden. Scott! <laughs> and you can follow us or share your thoughts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Forward Theater as always with an ER. And if you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you might tune in and be sure to leave a wonderful review. (laughs) We are so grateful to have you listening and we will be back soon for another Theater Forward conversation.